Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. Thank you, Leslie, for reading our lesson this morning. And again, what a special honor and joy it is to be with you in worship and to share God's word together. Uh, So grateful to Shelby for your prayer this morning that strengthens our faith and warms our heart to Mason, our praise team, and all of our production folks. We're so grateful to you, and especially to those of you who are streaming with us today who have linked in to be a part of this special holiday service. We welcome you, and what a joy it is to share God's word with you today. If you have been with us since the first of the year, uh, you know that we're right in the middle of a series called Reorientation. We're talking about the preaching of Jesus. Up to this point, in this year of discipleship, we have talked about the prayer life of Jesus, which leads into the power of Jesus. And then during Advent, we talked about the prophecy of Jesus. And for the first seven weeks of this season that we call Epiphany, we're thinking together about the preaching of Jesus. Specifically, we're looking very closely at the parables of Jesus. These metaphorical, poetic word pictures that, as we said last week, open our minds and hearts to the unknown and often to the unknowable. I don't have to tell you, I think Shelby was right on target in her prayer. We are living in an age of disorientation. And who among us, even today, in this transitional moment, isn't feeling unsettled? isn't feeling confused, perplexed, and a little off balance. In such a time as this, it not only seems right, but it seems absolutely necessary to turn to the scriptures, to turn to the parables of Jesus, which for our rabbi were the primary tool that Jesus used to reorient his followers to a new way of living. The Synoptic Gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain no less than 55 such analogies. And we're staying in Matthew 13. We've been in Matthew 13 for two weeks, and now in a third week, uh, Matthew 13 is often referred to as the parable discourse, because in this chapter alone, there are seven parables. And Leslie read for us yet another text about seeds. The last three weeks, we've read lessons about seeds. But today, it's not just a generic seed. It's not just any seed that Jesus is talking about. It's a mustard seed. This is one of the best known passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. In fact, it's found in all three synoptic accounts. The mustard seed. The mustard seed was proverbially considered the smallest of seeds. In fact, so small that it's almost indecipherable to the naked eye. 
I read recently that the mustard seed's diameter, it's about one to two millimeters, and it weighs, get this, the weight of a mustard seed is 0.0000004409 pounds. I can't even pronounce the measurement. It takes thousands of these tiny seeds even to equal an ounce. And yet, according to the story, when the mustard seed penetrates the, sound, the soil, when it takes root in the ground, it can actually grow up to 9, 10, 12 feet high. Now, it's not technically considered a tree. It's really more of a shrub or a hedge or a bush. But Jesus uses this herb in Matthew 13 to teach us something important about the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have heard the name Pliny, Pliny the Elder, a Roman naturalist of the first century. He was sort of the Yule Gibbons of his day, and I realize I'm dating myself. He was a naturalist who wrote in what is kind of the original encyclopedia, the first encyclopedia called Natural History. He wrote about mustard in about 78 AD, he said this, mustard is extremely beneficial to one's health. It has medicinal use. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, once it has been sown, it is scarcely possible to free the field of it because as soon as the seed falls, it germinates at once. For Jesus, the obvious point of the parable has to do with the disproportionate outcome of the seed versus its beginning. And it's remarkable that something so insignificant, that something so inconsequential could become something of such great substance. And so it is with the kingdom. It is astonishing that what began in Bethlehem with a tiny infant born in a cattle stall that seemingly ended on a cross on the outskirts of Jerusalem today numbers 2.6 billion followers worldwide. In other words, roughly one-third of the world's population. It's remarkable. And in looking at this particular parable, it's important, as we did last week, to look at the context. The two chapters prior to chapter 13 recall the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees, the religious elders. The community to whom Matthew is writing a generation or so after the ascension is enduring the same treatment as Jesus endured. They've been banned from the synagogue. They're being persecuted, ostracized by the Roman Empire, and they're beginning to wonder, where are we going from here? They're concerned about the outcome of their faith. They're stressed about the future of the movement. Well, every generation worries about the church, pastors particularly, Pastors not only worry about the church, sometimes they become the chief worry of the church. I, I think I heard an amen coming back through the camera. 
Everybody worries about the church. I made a New Year's resolution this year, and I don't do that every year, but I did this year. I made a resolution, I don't know how long it will last, to stop worrying about the church. I'm attempting to do this, not because the church doesn't have issues. We do, you do, I do, we all do. Everybody has clay feet. Our son, Andrew, is a pastor in Atlanta. He proposed to his girlfriend the week before Christmas, and suddenly everybody in our family seems to be getting married. And the girl he proposed to, whose name is Adair, is a therapist. She's a counselor. And Sherry and I are elated because we think that she can help him because every pastor needs a therapist. Anyway, back to the resolution. The reason I've decided to try to cross the church off my worry list is because of something our rabbi said three chapters after the parable that we just read. In response to the big fisherman's confession of faith, Peter's confession of faith, Jesus said this, upon this rock, I will build my church and listen, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, the church, though she struggles with evil, she will never be overcome by evil. You can't stop the church The kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, grows wild, but when planted, it is impossible to get free of it. Now, we all know, we've seen it. The world may try to root it out, but it cannot vanquish the church. However, it's pretty important to say, isn't it, that the church is not the kingdom. Those are two different entities. The church is a conduit of the kingdom. The church is a vessel of the kingdom. And so it is absolutely critical that the church not align itself too closely with a particular political persuasion or party, lest the church lose her prophetic zeal. This is exactly what Dr. King was talking about When he said, and I quote, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state. It is rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and critic of the state and never be its tool. Said Dr. King, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority, end of quote. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but the body of Christ has endured and grown in some of the most difficult of times. Indeed, I think there is evidence to show that the church often seems to flourish in times of conflict. Now, I want to pause it there for just a moment. I want to brag on God for just a minute. In the last year, in 2020, our engagement here at Bumsey with others in worship grew by 135% because of our streaming ministry. 
So while this sanctuary, this building was empty, the church has been full on Sunday morning. In 2020, you actually made good on 96% of your pledged giving in this difficult year. In the month of December, we actually received more stewardship, more resources in the month of December 2020 than we did in the month of December in 2019. Through digital discipleship, hundreds of you have been studying scripture. Many of you have been in dialogue and reading about racial inequity and and racial reconciliation. Travis Garner at our Nolensville campus, now they're they're laying down the steel in the ground for the new church that's happening there. We overshot our South Africa sponsorships for students, over 400 students by five. We're still looking for five students who need sponsorship because of what God has done and is doing in the midst of a most difficult day. That is mustard seed stuff. Now I have to tell you, if you had told me last March what we were gonna go through this year, I would have asked for a sabbatical, but I am so glad I didn't because it's absolutely amazing what God can do in the most unusual and unlikely circumstances. And that's not to say we don't have our low days, Lord knows. <laughs> Lord knows I've had my share, you've had your share, where you wonder if anything you do or anything you say really matters. We've all had those wilderness moments, the dark night of the soul, we call it, where you wonder if your life is fruitful, if if your life is purposeful. But even when the evidence around you is minute and inconsequential, we keep worshiping. We keep praying. We keep caring. We keep ministering. We keep giving. We keep forgiving. We keep studying. We keep hoping and loving and trusting and reconciling. Why? Because we know that the outcome is already promised and it's going to be way out of proportion with where it began. What looks imperceptible grows to be the largest plant in the field. In fact, isn't it interesting? Matthew calls it a tree. That's a little confusing, really, because a mustard plant is really more of a a plant than a tree. What's he talking about? He's alluding to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets often depicted earthly empires, kingdoms, as being great trees. For example, it was Ezekiel who said, Judah and Assyria are mighty cedars of Lebanon, And here Jesus says the kingdom is a shrub. It's his way of saying that my kingdom is different from the empires of this world. But then Matthew speaks of the shrub as becoming a tree. (laughs) He's saying that looks can be deceiving. And by the way, this is not a big is better kind of thing. The church has had enough of that. Sometimes smaller is greater. Sometimes little is much when God is in it. Like yeast in the dough, like seed in the soil, like a cup of water to one who's thirsty, like a hot meal to someone who's cold and hungry, like a place at the table for one who's been left out, 
like a letter of encouragement to one who is in despair, like a phone call to one who's hurting and grieving. Just, just a little dose of God goes a long, long way. Anybody remember the story in Matthew 17, right after the transfiguration, where the disciples were doing their best to help a sick boy who'd been having seizures and without, without knowing it would sometimes cast himself into the water or into the fire. And Jesus comes down and heals the kid and the disciples couldn't do it. They felt like an abject failure. And they say to Jesus, why, why couldn't we do anything for him? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, friends, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains and nothing will be impossible for you. You don't move mountains through hateful rhetoric and violence. That's the way you build them. You move mountains through love. You move mountains through compassion. I don't know why it is sometimes that our righteous indignation and disgust is so much easier to flame up than our compassion. Little is much. You don't have to have the faith of Abraham to make a difference. Just a smidgen will do. Just use what you have and you'll move a mountain. I'm thinking of Devontae Smith this morning. I don't know if you saw the national championship, University of Alabama, Devontae Smith almost single-handedly beat Ohio State in the big game. He only played half the game before he was injured, but what a difference he made. And of course, you know, the week before the big game, he received the Heisman Trophy. In his speech, he began by thanking God, and he went on to say, all my life, I've been told I'm too small, I'm, I'm not big enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not fast enough, but that 160-pound skinny kid from a meat city, Louisiana, two weeks ago received the highest honor in college athletics because he said little is much when God is in it. I think of all the sermons that Martin Luther King wrote and preached, many of which I have read and studied when I was a student at Emory University. My favorite, my favorite sermon is the street sweeper sermon where he says at one point, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause one day and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. He concluded the sermon by saying this, if you can't be a pine on top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley. Be the best scrub on the side of the hill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size 
that you win or fail, be the best whatever you are, little is much. The last part of this brief parable, verse 32 is my favorite line. The smallest of seeds turns into the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's the function of the seed. It's interesting to me that in the scriptures, birds flying about are generally symbolic of evildoers, kind of like the weeds in the parable of the wheat and tares. But alternatively, birds also represent the nations of the world being sheltered in this kingdom, the messianic kingdom. In fact, Ezekiel foresaw this. It was in his own crisis of exile and despair that he prophesied of such a day to come. Ezekiel 17, listen to this. On the mountain height of Israel, I'm going to plant a seed in order that it may produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble tree. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low shrub. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. For I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. And he did, and he will. Sometimes, just knowing how disproportionate the future is to the present has a way of reorienting us in hope even when we're disoriented. Last word. I got an email this week from one of our families that's been struggling. One of our men, a senior, was in the hospital last weekend at Vanderbilt in ICU, intensive care. His wife was with him. She happened to bring her iPad on Sunday morning and they tuned into our worship service. In spite of his illness, she said he seemed very engaged in the service. He was able to read aloud, to mouth aloud the liturgy and the affirmation of faith. And she said, when we got to the baptismal reaffirmation, we together in that little ICU room joined you in renewing our vows. She said, I had a cup of water. And I touched my finger to the water and he to the water and we made the sign of the cross on one another's heads and said to each other, remember your baptism and be thankful. She said, when I anointed my husband's head, he smiled for the first time since we'd been there in that room and he said, always remember to be thankful in all circumstances, even in intensive care. It is absolutely remarkable to me 
the places where reorientation happens. In a hospital bed, in a waiting room, at a funeral service, on a live stream. Wherever, says Jesus, wherever two or three, not, not a big crowd, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, faith happens. And what it becomes is way out of proportion to where it begins because little is much when God is in it and God is in it <laughs> with you, with me, with us for the good of creation to his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.